Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Please be seated. Well, good morning, friends. Uh, This is a day when we're continuing our sermon series, Rediscover Christmas. That's the first part. And then for the last few weeks, it's been peace, hope, today is joy, and next week is love. Now, those are words we're familiar with in the Christian church. We're not surprised to hear those, but we are going to unpack them, not only for the deepening of our faith, but in this time when there's so much that besets us, when there is so much that threatens to take away our joy, we are going to look at the basis for that joy so that we know that we can be anchored and we can be tethered no matter what might happen in the world. I'm going to tell you a little story about myself. In fact, I'm going to tell you a childhood nickname that no one save my family knows. And I do this at great risk because I know the clergy here. I know what I'm going to be subjected to. There won't be a meeting that won't start with them using this. But I'm going to take that risk because it makes the point that I want to make today. As a young child, I was, in spite of all of my weaknesses or vulnerabilities, a very happy, joyful, cheerful kid. That's how I was known in my family. I was the youngest of four boys, and it was often me standing on the hearth of the fireplace, singing families together, which was some summons for the family to gather for some purpose. So I was the town crier. I was the one who at Christmas, when there was gifts under the tree, I would deliver each present to to the person um, with a big smile on my face. And my mom had this nickname for me. She called me Chuckleberry. Now... I begged her never to use that again when I was a teenager. It was so horrifying. But as I stop and think about my life and about my childhood, that's about right. Chuckleberry. There was a sense of this burbling kind of joyful spirit. And so that's a memory that I have from early on. But as you know, and as you've lived, life can be hard. We can take hits. The joy that we know in our gut that is our center can kind of fade away or get blocked out. And so my belief is that our lives are actually a process of remembering our joy. Because I believe we came from joy. I believe we're going to joy. And our task in this earthly pilgrimage is to remember our joy. To remember that this is an attribute of God so that we are not deprived of that goodness. So I think this is a perfect topic for Advent, that sense of waiting, that sense of hoping for the Messiah, not only the baby in the manger, but as Bob prayed today, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who comes again in glory and sets all things right. It is a dual waiting that we do now for the baby in the manger and for the exalted king. That's our task this Advent. That's what we're preparing ourselves. And in doing that, in getting ready for Jesus to come among us and stir up that joy that is fundamentally God, we need to acknowledge and honor the pain and the discouragement and the disappointment and the violence of our world. We don't have to be silent about that. Joy isn't about somehow just putting on a happy face and ignoring that. It's going into those places that are not God to redeem and to claim what is God. And so I see it almost like a filtration plant. We take this junk of the world and we let it pass through us in Christ 
so that it can be redeemed and purified and so that we can come to that glory that God intends for us. So that's what we're doing in this church service today, and that's what we're doing in Advent. We're getting ready for joy. And I think a good place to start for this, lest you think I'm just making this up or this is my particular uh, take on it, is to go to the Bible and to look at figures who had a very hard time of it, but God came to them in a special way, rekindled their joy, and created a song to emerge. So first, let's think of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Many of you know that these were the parents of John the Baptist. And if you imagine the context of Roman occupation, if you imagine the context of corrupt religious leadership, the Bible tells the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And this is what the Bible says. In the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the eyes of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. So the stage is set here. In the midst of this corruption and violence, you have these two shining lights of obedience. And yet their lives are not without pain. They desire a child. They'd like to have a child. They can't have a child. And back then it was customary to say the woman was barren as if it was the woman. We know now it may be the man, it may be the woman. There's a lot of reasons for infertility. But at that time, the phrase was Elizabeth was barren and there was a sorrow and there was a shame in that society of not being able to bear children. And so they suffered in that reality. So one day, Zechariah is in the temple. He's doing his priestly duties, and an angel appears to him and says, you will have a child. God will come to you, and you will have a child in your old age. Do you hear this biblical motif, Abraham, all along, right? God comes and makes a special promise. And so God promised Zechariah, you will have a child. And Zechariah's first response was to question and to doubt. So what happened? His voice was taken away. So he can't speak. He's mute. And from then all the way through when John was eventually named, he was not able to speak. So that was a sign of God's coming to Zechariah. Elizabeth heard the news and she did believe. Uh, it says here um, that she actually sang out, the Lord has done this for me. In those days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. There's this sense that Elizabeth receives this good news, believes it will be true, but then she does an interesting thing. Rather than proclaiming it or uh, living it openly, it says she goes into seclusion for five months. And I'm very intrigued about that. This joy that comes to her, this promise, but her first response is to go away for five months into her silence, into her isolation, and ponder it as it were. And we don't know why that was. We don't know if it's because she was afraid the pregnancy wouldn't take and she might lose the child. We don't know if this was a sign of kind of her pain and her woundedness. But my sense is that sometimes when joy begins to bubble up, when joy begins to emerge, it's actually a vulnerable thing. And you need to go to a safe and quiet place to let it grow and to let it build. There's no mistake why the Book of Common Prayer in Compline, in the Compline Prayer, says shield the joyous. Shield them. It's a vulnerable place. It's a place of hope. It's open-hearted. One could be hurt 
shield the joyous. And so my imagination is that Elizabeth took to her house, uh, went on her own to, in a sense, give that joy time to take root. So meanwhile, in Galilee, we have Mary, a better known story, a young girl. She's engaged to be married to Joseph. Gabriel comes to her as well. It was Gabriel for Zechariah and Elizabeth, and it was Gabriel for Mary and says, favored one, you've been chosen to bear the son of God. Now, in the biblical version, it's wonderful because her response is almost liturgically perfect, right? Let it be to me um, according to your word, right? It's this perfect, gracious response. And I think that's the church kind of shaping it so that we will respond that way. When God comes to us, we'll have that perfect openness. But I think the idea that Mary knew this was going to be a hard journey, that all was not going to be easy, that there was a shame affiliated with being pregnant and not being yet married, right? This is a hard task she's been asked. And I think where you'd see the true Mary is it says she ran to her kinsperson, Elizabeth, to talk to her. She needed support. She wanted to share the news with Elizabeth, but she didn't even open the door when John and Elizabeth's womb, it says, jumped for joy. Listen to this. Blessed are you among women. This is what Elizabeth says as soon as she sees Mary. And blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. So you feel, I want you just to get this sense that joy is rumbling. Joy is getting ready to break forth. If you've ever been to Yellowstone National Park, seen the geysers, and you know Old Faithful 20 times a day, that water shoots up into the air, all the people around taking their pictures. That's what's happening. The earth is rumbling, and there is a sense that joy is about to break through. And so Elizabeth declares that joy with John jumping in her womb. But what comes next is Mary's song. And I want to read it in its entirety because no Episcopalian, no Anglican should be devoid of the song of Mary. We hear it in morning prayer almost every day for those who practice the office. And it gets to the heart of this joy that comes from the salvation of God, that the rulers may crush us, that the rich may deprive us. But there is a joy and a confidence that comes in God's salvation. Listen to Mary's song. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked with favor on his lowly servant. From this day, all generations will call me blessed. The almighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. For he has mercy on those who fear him in every generation. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in their conceit. He has cast down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has come to the help of his servant Israel, for he has remembered his promise of mercy, the promise he made to our fathers, to Abraham and his children forever. You get this sense in Mary's joy that there has been something building from the beginning of time, God's revelation to God's people, and it's now being manifested in a new and concrete way in the birth of Jesus Christ. And she can't help but sing. She can't help but get in touch with that joy, even as she has to face Joseph, even as she has to endure the scorn of her neighbors. She knows that God has acted, that God has acted with strength decisively and filled her with the Son of God. 
I mean, it's remarkable. And there's no wonder that that joy comes pouring through in her song. And then I would just refer you to Isaiah 61. We're not going to look at it now, but it's our Old Testament lesson for today. And that's in the same vein. That's what Mary and Elizabeth knew, this song from Isaiah, that there will be water in the wilderness and that the good news will be for the broken and the captive and the wounded and the starving. This is the story we must tell as the church. And if we don't tell this story, we are missing the prophetic witness that in the midst of our deprivation, that God is doing a new thing and raising up new joy. And so Elizabeth and Mary are simply conduits. They're expressions of this promise that began very early. So think about these stories for a moment. What do we glean? What is for us today in Dallas, in December, in 2020, the end of a very bad, terrible year? What is the lesson? What is the takeaway for us? I'm going to suggest that the first, and this is crazy that we have to say this, it is okay to feel happiness and joy. It is okay to feel happiness and joy. And if you've worked with somebody who's lost a loved one, someone who's grieving, they actually have to be reassured that it's okay when they want to burst out laughing that it's okay when they have this memory that puts a smile on their face. That doesn't diminish the grief. It's part of the grief that you can actually find joy in that sorrow. And so my encouragement for you is if you kind of feel like you're not supposed to show it or it's unseemly in this time, think about it. Our world needs joy. It needs happiness in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of political craziness. The world needs to see that there's joy and that it comes from God. So it's okay to experience that. The second is joy is a sign of strength, but not the kind of strength that the world talks about. Jo joy is strength precisely because it comes from that open heartedness. I talked before the little Kenny who's singing on the hearth, who's giving out the presents, who, who chuckles. That is actually a kind of strength because it is our earliest place. It's our security in God. And so in a sense, some will, um, there will be envy with joy. There will be a violence toward it. And that's why you must be careful. You must, as an adult, experience your joy, but also guard it because it can be a vulnerable place to be for those who have lost it, for those who are envious of it. It can be a source of attack. And so I tell you, be careful in your joy, but it's okay to have it and, and don't apologize for it. So it's okay to feel joy. It's a form of strength in a spiritual sense. And I think maybe most importantly, sometimes we have to choose it. Sometimes we don't feel it. And the psalmist talks about all the time. The psalmist reviews the ways that God is distant, that God is not present. And then at the end of the psalm, will say, rejoice in the Lord always. It's this paradox that you may not feel the nearness of God. You may not feel that there's any reason to sing, but sing. And the feeling will come. And those who have experienced clinical depression know exactly what I'm talking about. There are times when the best thing your family or therapist can do is tell you to go to a movie, to read a funny book, to 
act in a way that is different than the illness, because otherwise you're so prescribed by the illness and you can't break out. And so that encouragement to choose joy, even if you don't feel it. It's interesting that the verb for joy is rejoice and think about the prefix re. What does it mean again to come back to? Remember what I was talking about as children, we sometimes have a sense of that early joy. We need to come back to joy as it has been revealed to us at different points in our lives. So it's almost like, and it's also the same um, verb return to repent. It's to go in a new direction to come around. And I think the same way with joy, we can sometimes get into a pretty dark path and we have to turn, we have to rejoice, come back to joy and there's a, an action, a verb in that. And I encourage you in this Advent to think about what it means to come back to joy in your own life. What would that look like? James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So as we become more mature disciples, we become deeper in our capacity for suffering, but also higher in our capacity for joy. And if you feel like either one is getting cut off, I'm calling you today to an acknowledgement of both your capacity for suffering and your capacity for joy. Have them in equal measure, because I believe that that is what it means when we say heaven on earth, that God is revealing something to us, the, the range of what's possible in God. As I said, 2020 has been hard. I don't have to tell you the ways. You know the losses. It might be a loss of a family member. It might be a loss of freedom. It might be any number of losses at trips, activities that were planned and canceled. And it's easy to just get stuck in that sense of sorrow. But I do believe that in Advent, there is, we're being called to something deeper, something godly that we go beyond a superficial existence. And, and this is where Chris often says, don't let a good crisis go to waste. I think what I'm imagining is that this hurt that we've had will prepare us for a revelation of God's glory in a way that we've never seen before. It's like all the peoples of the earth are right now being prepared for a joy that it cannot yet comprehend. And I ask you to hold that hope, to hold that vision of joy that the world can't see just yet. Ultimately, joy is about God with us. It's about Emmanuel. It's about the ground we stand on. It's about the Christ whom we follow and anchor ourselves in. So when we feel joy, it's not just an action of Ken or Eric or Bob or Marla. It's an action of God. And we are vessels. We are conduits. Just like Mary, who was minding her own business, and this angel came to her. And then she burst out into song because the Holy Spirit moved in her and gave her a song to sing. And I believe that's ahead for us. I believe a song has begun even now. It's rumbling under the earth, just like those geysers. It will burst forth. And those of us who are paying attention, who are practicing Advent, will not be surprised by it because we'll know that God was planning it from the very beginning. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Amen.